Well, good morning. Let me welcome you again. It's good, uh, it's good to have you all here, just a few of us uh, this morning, but the Lord is just pleased that we're here um, committing ourselves, confessing our sins, singing, praying, fellowshipping. Uh, it's just a delight to Him, and uh, it's, it's just a joy to me as well to see you all. And uh, we're, we're in a series, we just, this is the third week in a series on the book of uh, Genesis, Actually, we're looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis between now and, and Christmas. This is, uh, you know, it's actually a series I've been really looking forward to. Genesis is not, not only the, uh, one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. You know, the New Testament writers are always talking about Genesis. But, uh, and that Jesus is always quoting, especially these early chapters of Genesis. Um, but these, uh, this book really teaches us how to see the world. What does it mean to be human? What is the earth? You know, why are we here? Basic, real, fundamental questions like that. So, uh, so I'm really excited to uh, look together at this, uh, at this book. And if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 2, or the passage we're looking at is printed for you <clears throat> in the bulletin. This is Genesis 2, uh, starting in verse 4. This is God's Word. These are the generations of the heavens... In the earth, when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and is the one that flowed around the, uh, the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, and Bedellium and Onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and we, uh, we pray, uh, we thank you that um, in the very beginning of the world, you spoke. And when you spoke, you began to, uh, to form and make beauty out of chaos. And you, know, you gave life when you spoke. And uh, even uh, when you first said, let there be light, that was the first day of the week. And now here we are on the first day of the week, and we ask that you would speak again, and uh, that you would bring light into our lives, bring order uh, to chaos, and that you would breathe uh, new life into us again through your word. So uh, we submit ourselves to you, and we ask for your, your spirit to be our teacher now. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me, I'm losing my voice a little bit. Um, the um, so uh, back in college, uh, I went to Western. Uh, my wife and I were there for six years, and I, I worked at Avenue Bread downtown. Some of you know it's a little shop. Actually, my my sister owns Avenue Bread, 
And, uh, you know, when you work in a, in a shop like Avenue Bread where people are coming in buying bread, you get to know, uh, yes, thank you, Paul. You read my mind. Uh, you get to know, let's see if I can fit this somewhere. <clears throat> I might have to go down now and again. Uh, you get to know people who are coming in, and uh, there's one gal, she'd come in, I think she'd get rye bread every couple days. She really liked rye bread, and we were always talking chatting. And one day she came in, and uh, I was on my break. I was sitting out at a table, and she's walking out, and I'm reading my Bible, and she walks out. She's, you know, a generation, you know, she's probably in her 50s. And she comes up, and she says, oh, you're reading the Bible, you know, weird. I didn't know people read the Bible anymore. <clears throat> and... Uh, and I said, well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. And she said, oh, that's really interesting. Wow, good. I didn't know, especially a young person reading the Bible. And she said, you know, one of the things that I never got about the Bible, it seemed like God in the, there was this God in the Old Testament who was so angry all the time. And then you have this God in the New Testament when Jesus is loving and, and uh, forgiving sins and he loves everyone. And I thought it seemed like there were these two different gods. All right, see ya. And walks out the door. I was like, oh, you know, okay. <laughs> Never got my chance to give an answer uh, to that. I guess this is my chance. He's not here. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I suppose that a lot of people um, have, I mean, and even Christians have that idea of like, it seems like we got, uh, there are two different gods going on here in the Bible. And, uh, you know, most people don't know that all, most of the texts that, you know, talk about final judgment and eternal torment and hell, those all come from gentle Jesus. Uh, gentle Jesus is the, the originator of our whole idea of hell. So the, the, New, Te- the New Testament, actually, you have <laughs> the God of wrath also uh, popping up in there. Um, but I think one of the things that goes along with the idea that the Old Testament is an angry God and the New Testament is a loving God is we, begin to, we start to think that what's happening in the Old Testament is that God has a law and he wants people to obey the law. That's, that's how you get right with God is you obey the law, you do good things and he'll accept you. If you don't do good things, then he'll judge you. And most people aren't doing good things, so that's why he's angry. And in the New Testament, you're saved by grace, by faith in Jesus. You just have faith in Jesus and God receives you. It's kind of, kind of different. Um, but um, now Genesis 2 is a really good text to kind of blow that view out of the water Um, Genesis 2 begins and already begins to communicate to us that God's dominant uh, disposition towards people towards humans is his, his first step his first instinct is grace unmerited favor uh, love that you don't deserve. That's, that's God's instinct. That, that, that's what comes most, nat- most naturally to him. Now, of course, God is a judge, and, and, uh, and you know, we'll have to give an account. But the first thing is that God is gracious. And actually, that's always the last thing, too. You know, whenever, there's a, whenever there's a word of judgment, it always ends with grace. There's always, there's always a hope of grace on the other, on the other end. And so, um, right at the heart of the Christian life, what does, it mean, you know, what does it mean to be Christian? Well, a day-to-day kind of thing is really, in our hearts, beginning to grab on to that truth that God, God is gracious. God does not deal with us according to our sin, but according to his steadfast love and faithfulness. That, that first instinct. That's what being a Christian is, is resting and trusting on them. And so we're, that's what we're going to look at. The Christian, what does life with God look like? What is a Christian life? And we're, I'm going to kind of highlight three things that come out of this, uh, out of this passage. First, that... Life with God is a gift. That's the grace. Life, walking with God, life with God is a gift from God. Secondly, kind of derives from that, is life with God is worship. And lastly, that life with God is dependence on Him. 
life with God is the best. We're going to unpack kind of those three, <clears throat> three things as we look through this text. So I'm going to try to clear it out here. So first, <clears throat> life with God is a gift. Now, um, in the passage that we're looking at, one of the big issues that kind of comes up when you talk to people is it says, wait a second, we just... Man and woman were just made in Genesis 1, and now it says there's no man to work the field, and, and God makes man again. What's, didn't we just go over that? Uh, and so many people say, this, it appears that there are two creation stories um, happening in Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, probably, maybe even more problematic was, in Genesis 1 it said on day 3 that uh, God made all the plants and all the vegetation. And then day 6... He made the man. But now uh, it says um, in verse uh, 5, When no bush of the field was in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain, and there was no man to work the ground. So it sounds like in Genesis 1, you got the plants, and then humans come in, in day 6, and now it's saying, well, there's no plants because there's no humans yet. We need humans before we can get plants. This seems like a contradiction. And, uh, and so many scholars have said, well, you know what this is, is, uh, well, maybe Moses, maybe someone later. The, Genesis is a collection of stories, oral traditions, that are kind of getting pasted together. And, you know, the people who are doing the pasting aren't, you know, don't think about the details too closely, and they kind of double up things. And, um, and so that, uh, you know, over the, the past uh, 100 years, Different authors have tried to piece together, okay, there's all these, rip apart Genesis into all these pieces. And probably uh, the biggest uh, case that they use for it is that the name of God changes from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. So that in Genesis 1, the word that's used is God. You know, it's translated in your, in your Bible, God, that's Elohim. And then all of a sudden, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, if you uh, look there in verse 4, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens on the day that the Lord God. So that's, uh, that's Yahweh. The word Lord is Yahweh, God's covenant name with Israel. Yahweh Elohim. And so there's these two names. It's like, see, there's one author uses the name Elohim, one author uses Yahweh Elohim, and so they're, they're patch, patching things together. Now, well, as it turns out, these difficulties are worked out much more simply than ripping Genesis apart. Because Genesis is a pretty unified book. So you've got problems. It tells a pretty unified story. And uh, so, you know, first of all, why are there two accounts in the, story, in the story of Genesis? Why was man made in Genesis 1 and now he's made again in Genesis 2? Well, you think about, you know, if you had an atlas and uh, you open up your atlas, you know, let's say it has all the states in the United States. And you open up to Washington and there's an atlas um, picture of Washington. Here's the state as a whole. And then it turns out that there's another map in the corner of Seattle, right? That would happen. You say, okay, here's Washington, but not every part of Washington as a whole is as important. There's a lot going on in Seattle. So let's do a little more detailed map in the corner so you know what What's happening in Seattle? That's, that's what Moses is doing in Genesis 1 and 2. Six days of creation. The sixth day he makes humans. That's important. There's more details. There's more that needs to be fleshed out. So I'm going to give you a little sub-map in, in Genesis 2, and we're going to go into some more details. And as for you know, the plants, really all it is is in, in Genesis 1 it says God makes plants. And in this one it says, uh, in, um, uh, it talks about what verse is that? Verse 5 that there was no bush of the field 
and there were no small plants of the field. So the key is that word of the field. So the, what he's saying is there was no agriculture. There was no farming. There were no, there was no men digging up, uh, making food for, their, you know, for their, themselves, for their families, their animals. There's none of that going on yet. And so really all he's saying is there was no agriculture yet. And uh, this relationship of God giving rain and man working the soil, that wasn't happening. It's not that there weren't any plants yet. And so, um, but probably um, the thing that opens up to us what this passage is about is the, the question of the names. Um, because the names, uh, there's this change of name. And one of the things that's different about the Genesis 1 story is it's talking about God as the creator. He's the almighty king. He makes everything. And yet the name uh, Yahweh, the, which translated Lord there, Yahweh, is God's covenant name. It's the name that he has as a relationship to his people, Israel. It's the, it's the name that God vows himself to be. It's, it's the name of God's relationship. Um, so that in Genesis 1, it's about how God creates, but Genesis 2 is about how God loves. How God binds himself to people and says, I'm, I'm your God. I'm not just a distant creator. I'm a God who's involved in your life, who knows you, who uh, cares about what's happening in your life and is shaping who you are. That's, that's who we meet. And you can even see that, um, whereas Genesis 1 says, God created man, but uh, in Genesis 2, it has this much more personal image that, that God's like a potter. You know, if, if you look in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord <clears throat> formed the man of dust. That word formed is like what, they, what you'd use to describe a, a potter. And then this, I love this part. Um, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So what you have is you have God coming up to man like face to face. And just warmth and intimacy and breathing. It's like a kiss. And God is kissing into life this man. There's this sense of closeness. Genesis 1 is the distant God who creates everything. Here you have an intimate God uh, loving and uh, giving life, to, giving of himself, self-giving God. Now, um, one question that's important to ask is, what did Adam do to deserve this? God coming to him, God initiating. What did Adam do? What, what was Adam? Adam was dirt. <laughs> he was dead in the dust. He was nothing. He wasn't even an idea. He could not have even thought of God. He, he had, there's nothing he could have started. And God went and got him and formed him. God initiated. It was God's idea. And God came close to him and kissed him and breathed on him and breathed life in him. And, you know, uh, I'll tell you that that's, you know, that's the same way that Christian life is. You know, uh, whether you whether you grew up in a Christian home and you heard the gospel your whole life, you say, "Why was I? Why did I land in this family?" So that you know, if your parents modeled the gospel for you and you really believed it since you're a child and you you were taught it, you say, "Why? How did I land here?" You know, people land in all different kinds of families. How did I land here? It wasn't it was just God's initiative? Or if you you know you become a Christian later, you see that God's putting people in your life and and it, things that you and often we're running away from God. He's chasing after us. He's like a hound, hunting us down, pursuing us. It was his idea. He's coming, he's coming for us. And um, life with God is a gift. To live life with God is a gift. And one of the things uh, for us to understand is that that's not just the beginning of your Christian life. It's not just, oh, you know, Paul's talking about we're a bunch of sinners coming. It's not just right when at the beginning and say, okay, you were a sinner at the beginning. Okay, God forgave all that. Now... Now, start working hard. It is from day one to the end of your life, life with God is a gift. It is a continual gift. It is a continual God coming face to face and personally and breathing into us things that we don't deserve. Now, um, 
do you, uh, how do you, how do you think of God? Is that how you view God? Initiating? His first instinct towards you is, is goodness and, and wanting the best for you? Is that, is, that your is that how you see him? Or is it that uh, God is wa- waiting for you to do your duties? And uh, he's, um, he's reluctant. He's holding things back from you. He's like, I, I, okay, if, if you meet my demands, then um, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to pour my love onto you. Is that, or, you know, when you go to God in prayer... Is God's first instinct to hear every word? He wants, like a child, he wants to hear every word that's coming from your mouth. Is that, is that how you see him? Or, or are you evaluating how your week has been and saying, well, you know, I haven't come and prayed for a week. Is he even going to listen to this? Why should he listen to it? What, what is God's instinct towards you? And because if it's, if it's that way, that, that uh, I, God, God wants me to pay my dues before he's going to uh, give me his, his love and pour his love on me. What, what are we saying? We're saying God's like an employer, Right? God, uh, that's the transaction. God says, okay, you do, you do the duties. I'll pay your wage, okay? Not, you know, maybe I'll give you a Christmas bonus. Uh, that's, but we're holding back. Is, is, is God tight-fisted? And um, what we see uh, is that Yahweh Elohim of Genesis 2 is not that way. He's face-to-face personal. And, uh, and Adam even didn't go looking for God. God came and came face to face with him. And you know, there's the, uh, we read in, the, uh, in our Assurance of Pardon, Psalm 103. Let me read that to you again. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children... So the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. And then listen, this is this closing line. This is going back to Genesis. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are but dust. He remembers that we're weak. He knows that we're weak. He, know, he knows that we're frail. He knows that we need him. And his first instinct towards us is kindness. That's his first instinct. Do you see that way? And you know, it's interesting. Jesus, uh, at the end of his ministry, he's, he's about to send his disciples out. Jesus does, you know, if you ever wonder, how do we know that Jesus really thought he was God or, or acted like God, you know, claimed to be God? He does this thing at the, end of, uh, at the end of the Gospel of John. He's meeting with disciples. He's about to go back into heaven. And uh, he says to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. What's, what's Jesus doing with his disciples? He's doing Genesis 2. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive life. Receive the life of God. And Jesus is doing what God did in Genesis 2 to Adam. Now he's doing it to his disciples. He's breathing his life into them so that they might, they might live with him and they might serve. That's God's first instinct. Now, uh, when you find out that life with God is not a, a transaction of wages... You know, I, I, I do my 40 hours, he gives me a paycheck. That's not the transaction. The transaction is him initiating his first instinct is grace towards us. When you really find that, you're really praying, you believe that, your first response is going to be to worship. You will be amazed. Your heart becomes full and you want God in every little part of your life. That will be, that will be your initial response. And so that leads to our second point. So life with God is a gift, first of all. It's a free gift. But second... Life with God is uh, worship. Excuse me. Um, 
Now, you know, when you first look at this text, uh, you, might, you might not think that this text is about worship, right? So you, you got Adam, he's made in the garden, or he's made, and God puts him in the garden, he's doing some farming, there's some rivers flowing around, stuff like that, and then God says, okay, you can eat all the trees, but don't eat, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, where is worship in this text? Well, um, you know, as I've said before, whenever you're trying to find out what does a passage of the Bible mean, the question, the, the, one of the first questions you want to ask is, what did the original author intend to communicate to the original audience? So uh, Genesis was written by Moses to the Israel after Israel had come out of Egypt. They uh, God had delivered them out of slavery, and they're going to the Promised Land. They spent forty years in the desert, wandering around, and Genesis was written as pastorally during that time in the in the desert. And, and, and God's saying, "This is part of my encouragement to you, is I'm going to tell you what kind of God I am." And while you're wandering around. And, uh, and you may have noticed that in this uh, account of Genesis, in Genesis 2, there's these strange little details that get thrown in there. Like uh, if you look in verse 12, and the gold of that land was good, uh, bdellium and onyx stone are there. Now, uh, to us, that little bit of detail is like, does this help the story? Is this an added, you know, there's gold there, okay? Uh, and there's these stones, and what's, what's the point of that? It has no meaning to us. But if we were Israelites, uh, this would trigger things in our mind. Um, because Israel, when they were in, in the wilderness, they had, uh, God told them to build this tent where God was going to dwell called the tabernacle. And this is where they went to worship. And if you read the descriptions of the tabernacle, you'll see that everything was, all the furniture was covered with gold, pure gold. And onyx stones were one of the main, uh, you know, main decorative pieces uh, used in the tabernacle. And in fact, uh, the, the, the priests wear these garments and they'd have on their chests uh, these onyx stones that were engraved on them uh, were the names of Israel. So uh, what these things are is they're triggering in their mind, oh, our tabernacle, where we, to, where we go to worship God, that's modeled after uh, Adam's life in the garden, Adam's life in Eden. What Adam was, God went and breathed life into him, and then Adam was being a gardener, but that's what we're doing at the tabernacle. And, um, and what that means is that God made uh, Adam out of dust, and um, that everything that Adam did, his whole life, was an act of worship. That's what he was originally intended to be to do is to worship, and um, and so what that what that's communicating to the original audience was communicating to us is that you know when we uh, when Israel would go to the tabernacle and they'd have this devoted time you know on the Sabbath where they're going to go worship God or where you come here and you you know I'm gonna I'm gonna have a devoted time out of my week where I'm gonna focus recenter on God. What, uh, what Genesis 2 says is that kind of God-centered um, enjoyment of God is what all of life is meant to be. You know, for some of you, that's, that's a, I'll tell you one reason why that's a relief. You know, we, there's these, scripture, these passages in Scripture that talk about how when we go, go into eternity, we're going to be with God forever, that we're going to be praising and singing, him, singing to Him and enjoying Him forever. And a lot of times we have the image of what that means. Basically, you know, heaven is going to be a really long church service. And, uh, you know, it's going to be going and singing, and, you know, and 11.30 will never come. <laughs> and uh, it's going to be like this forever. And you say, well, I, I know I'm supposed to 
like that idea, that vision of heaven as being in heaven, being in church forever. Um, but what Genesis two says is that the whole purpose of this is that everything that we're supposed to do, our work, our families, our friendships, our, our uh, you know raising children, our hobbies, all of these things were were meant to be done in the presence of God, and in the enjoyment of God, and in communion with God, with God's presence there. That's what that's what it was all meant to be. Um, now. Uh, let me let me just make one side note here. One of the uh, one of the main actually, wor- you know, one of the words that really hammers this home. You say, you know, okay, I see the gold in the in the onyx stones. Is that really enough to connect it to the tabernacle? Well, probably the biggest thing that connects it to the tabernacle is uh, is in verse fifteen, where it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, those, those two words, work it and keep it, uh, the Hebrew words are, u- are the exact same words that are used for the Levites in the tabernacle. They are to work and to keep the tabernacle. Actually, it's probably translated to minister and to guard the tabernacle. And so Adam's life uh, working the garden is, is connected to worship. Now, one of the things that that tells us is that maybe this should be translated instead of to work the garden and to keep it, is to work the garden and to guard the garden. And you might think about, why would that be a good thing for Adam to be thinking about guarding the garden? Well, chapter 3, the garden is going to have an intruder. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if, you, if you've ever wondered, you know, I, you watch uh, Saving Private Ryan or your Braveheart, and you say, is all that uh, courage and uh, fighting and bravery, you know, uh, you know, especially if you're a guy, you're just like, yes, that, that's what it means to be a man. You say... Was that supposed to be there before the fall? Is that only a part of the fall? Are we gonna, you know, is there any? Is that really intrinsic to us? And one of the things that Genesis says is there was an intruder coming in uh, to, to Adam's life, and the man had a responsibility to guard the garden and to kill the serpent. So we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But the man had a, an initial responsibility to fight. And so, just as a side note, let me just say that I think that working to keep it. I mean, as men. Uh, the Bible has a responsibility for us uh, that part of when God breathes life into us, we're going to have a responsibility to, to be guards, really, of our families, to protect our families and uh, against, against intruders. That, that's part of what God's gift of life is going to be for us. And what that, what that looks like, you know, part of that is going to be, I've got to know my Bible. When spiritual attacks uh, come into my family, do I, do I have the spiritual resources to, to deal with them? Or, um, you know, when conflict comes into our family, is a man's responsibility to make sure that tensions, sins that are, that are growing up in a family are being dealt with and resolved, that they're being confessed to the Lord. That a husband and a man, his, his, it's everyone's responsibility to confess their sins to the Lord, but the man should be the first to confess his sins. And, and to say, hey, we need to talk about this. And, you know, I'll tell you, I, you know, a big part of guarding you know, for a man guarding his family, guard, the guarding aspect of life is going to be praying. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, I, this, this is not natural for me. I, I, praying for my family, it's hard for me to take a, a long period of time and go through all the details. I mean, I have five kids. That's, that's a lot of details. And each kid praying, for, you know. And one of the things, this is just a practical thing that, that's been helpful for me uh, that I've even learned just as a pastor is, to, uh, a good way to guard my family and to pray for them is to pray for things right when they come up. You know, so let's say I'm going to work 
and uh, you know one kid's throwing a fit, and there's another dirty diaper over here, and there's a mat, the kitchen's a mess. I'm like, oh, see ya, gotta go to work, you know. And uh, it's to go to Shannon and just pray for her right then, you know. I mean, obviously, I'm gonna try to help her to get things in order before I leave, but if I can't, is to just take a moment and say, I'm gonna pray for you right now. Or if my, or if the kids having, one of our kids is having a hard time is instead of saying me praying for my family looks like me taking an hour and going, which is an important thing to do, a, first, a good first step is to say, hey, before I leave, let me pray for you. And uh, what we're doing, what, you know, just to connect this to life with God as a gift, is that what we're doing is we're saying as men, I have a responsibility to guard, but I, you know, I can't do that. I'm, my life is a gift. And so what we're doing in prayer is we're going to saying that God is the great guardian. He is uh, the great fortress. And so that um, life with God is a gift, and, and it leads us into worship. That's our response. When we see when God's done for that, we want to worship him. We want him in every aspect of our life. But the third aspect of life with God is that life with God is dependence. Okay? Now, um, at the beginning, life with God is, is about dependence on God. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned uh, this gal who... Um, who uh, came into the uh, came into the avenue bread and she was saying, well, "Why is God in the Old Testament angry? God in the New Testament loving?" And um, and I, you know, a, a lot of Christians have uh, this same kind of bifurcation of God, these these two gods. And um, one of the things that this passage really unpacks for us is something that's called covenant theology. This is the beginning of covenant theology. Let me just tell you a little bit about what covenant theology is. Um, so bear with me for a second. In the Bible. The Bible does say that there are two covenants. There are two ways, uh, means by which God deals with humans. But they are not the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those are not the two. The two are the covenant with Adam, which, we're, which we have in this passage. God makes a covenant with Adam. It's called the covenant of life or the covenant of works. And a second covenant, which he makes with the second Adam. The second Adam, Romans says, is Jesus. And what the Bible says is that all of humanity is, um, when God makes a covenant, a covenant is a relationship that God initiates with people where he promises blessings and he requires a, a, a responsive relationship and trust from them. And uh, so, but whenever God makes a covenant with a people, there's always a representative of those people. So, for example, when God makes humanity, there's a representative of humanity who's Adam. So when Adam sins, what happens to all of us? We're all the ones we're represented. We become sinners. <laughs> we inherit his sin. We become like him. And so we're connected to our covenant head. And so the, what the story of the whole Bible is, is God providing a second covenant head, a, a, new, a new Adam. And his name is Jesus. And so what happens is when we have faith in Jesus, we say, my new, uh, my new legacy that I'm inheriting, it's not with Adam, it's with Jesus. He's my new Adam. He's my new covenant head. And so... Um, And one of the things that um, you see in this covenant, now let me just talk uh, for a minute about this, uh, this covenant that, that, I, that God makes with Adam. Let's just read it together again, uh, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what you see in this is God's first instinct towards Adam is, you see all this beautiful world I made? You see this, this garden, this park with all the trees? I want you to eat it. I want you to um, make food. Um, I want you to go uh, swimming. You know, I want you to go hiking. I want you to do all that. I want you to do that with me. My first instinct for you is, is to enjoy. But then he makes this one uh, restriction on Adam to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, um, you know, at first you say, okay, God gives him all the trees. He says, there's just this one that you can't eat of. But, you know, a lot of times when we read this, it's like, okay, I understand there's all these trees, but, you know, it's almost like God is saying, um, yeah, okay, you can eat all these trees, but there's this one tree that has this amazing, mind-blowing knowledge that uh, you, you just can't, you can't imagine it, but, you know, I, you, actually, you can, you're not allowed to do that. You'll die if you do that. This is me and the angels can eat that one, but you, you can't get in. And, you know, you, as a kid, you know, if you were a kid, you'd think, like, okay, forget all the other trees. One track, I've got to find out what the secret knowledge is, you know, the mystery of, uh, of the tree. Uh, but it, it, actually, a very different picture <laughs> is going on here. If the tree of knowledge of good and evil... Gives you, tells you what is good and what is evil, what does that tree give you? Gives you a rule book. The tree is a law. And what God is saying is, uh, listen, if you, if you eat of that tree, what you're saying is, I can figure out, I, I want to be able to make decisions about my life, about what's good and evil, I, independently. I don't, want, I, don't, I don't need you involved. And, and what God is saying is, you want to find out about good and evil, you come to me. I want you to walk with me. I want to disciple you. I want, to, um, I, I want it to be a relationship. I want you to learn about good and evil from, from the source of all good. And uh, what the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil is, is it's an offer to independence. It's, a, it's an offer to be self-sustaining and uh, to be autonomous. And, uh, and so what God is saying with don't eat of this tree, what he's saying is I want you to have everything. But the one thing I don't want you to do is cut yourself off from me. I want you to walk with me. I, that's what you're made for, is a relationship. Now, we know that uh, from the rest of <clears throat> this story that Adam and Eve decided that the, to choose independence. Uh, you know, she was, uh, Eve was deceived, but, but really Adam uh, had a clear choice of uh, whether he wanted uh, dependence with God or if he wanted to eat of the fruit, and he ate of the fruit. Now, what happens in the Bible is that the second Adam comes, and, uh, oh, my mic's growling out, it's picking up here, um, the second Adam comes, and, uh, and what happens, what, what you see through Jesus' whole life is a consistent dependency on his father, he says, I only do what the father tells me to do, I, I, I only say what the father tells me to say, and even when Jesus is dying on the cross, what, what was so agonizing and tragic about the cross for Jesus, what does he say, my, fa- my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The heart, not even the physical pain of the cross, but, but to be into, uh, isolated and alienated from God. That was the, 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 the terrible pain. And what we have in Jesus is a new head, a new humanity, a new way of doing life. And what the promise for us is, is that when we put our faith in Jesus, um, we, we are separating ourselves from our first head, Adam, and we're saying we want a new head. And God promises to restore us to make us dependent, to give us life again, to come face to face with us and to breathe life into us, to make everything that we do worship to him and, and done in his presence, and to now actually that our bodies, our minds, our hearts can actually be dependent on God. That's the promise. So let's thank the Lord together.
Father, uh, we thank you for this word. We thank you that your first instinct to us is goodness, is grace, is unmerited favor. We do want our life to be worshipped to you. Um, would you use these times on Sundays uh, to seep into our work, seep into our families, that more and more we are worshipping you, enjoying you in all that we do, and uh, increase in us the hope of uh, one day when we are with you at last forever, that, uh, that we will walk with you um, without a faltering step, and we will know your voice and, uh, and be fully dependent on you. And that won't be hard for us. That will be a joy. So work that in us now, we ask, by your Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen.